You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with the sermon this morning, I would invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16. Our text this morning is largely about prayer. You may be wondering what manna and quail have to do with prayer but I hope that will be clear to you soon enough. Let's read that together. Exodus chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this day, in this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he's heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to this entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one of you is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little, and when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. 
Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. The Israelites ate manna forty years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And Omer is one-tenth of an ephah. And then if you would turn to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 14, the verses 13 through 21. It's the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the, to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 5,000 men, besides women and children. Our text this morning is a number of verses from the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. The last part of verse 5 through verse 7. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in order to give you a sense of what Paul is is addressing here, I believe, I want to tell you a little story. When I was younger, I had a paper route, papers that had to be delivered before 7 o'clock in the morning. I had to make the short trip every morning out to my shed in the backyard, rain or shine, full moon or none, to get my bicycle. I used that to deliver my papers. On many mornings, I made that trip without thinking twice about it. I was on my bike probably before I had even really woken up and on my way. 
But there, there were those few mornings when there was no moon out. And the sky was covered with clouds. There was no light. On those mornings, I not only had a slower trip to the shed as I had to feel my way through the darkness, but my heart was also filled with fear. There was the sense of odd, never-before-seen masses of, of blackness in the dark that I wondered about what they were. And there was the possibility of any number of animals or even strangers, people, that could be lurking there in the unseen blackness. I remember coming to the shed and throwing open the door wide and just waiting, giving the chance for any intruder or animal or whatever might be in there to get out before I had to go in. For me, those were scary mornings. I had no peace of heart or mind. And then there were the rustles. I was keenly aware of every slight noise around me on that short trip into the backyard. Though early in the morning, an uncommon attentiveness would would come to me, and I would walk silently, alertly listening for any sound which could potentially mean trouble. They say that for one who is afraid... Everything rustles. Well, it would happen on occasion that even as I listened and watched intently, the wind would pick up and and the leaves would begin to rustle on the trees, so much so that, that I couldn't hear and distinguish one rustle from the other. And then, try as I might, I couldn't pick out what might be a dangerous sound, where there might be a sense of of, of, of a threat, of danger. The whole world, it seemed, came alive with rustlings. Everything was threatening to me, and my heart was filled with fear. Worry and anxiety is really a type of fear. But whereas with one type of fear, you respond to a sudden movement in the dark, either, they say, with fight or flight, Or you react to an unexpected confrontation. That's one type of fear. Anxiety is like your reaction to that rustling in the trees. You're unable to distinguish between the threats. Everything could be a threat. You can't pick out where the problem is coming from exactly. And yet the threat seems to be constant, unyielding. There's limitless possibilities of potential dangers And fear gnaws at your heart. Well, someone has said, when you're afraid, everything rustles. Perhaps they're trying to explain the feeling of someone experiencing worry or anxiety. Suggesting that, yeah, there's a lot of rustles going on, sounds, but things that aren't really threatening. But I don't believe that. We live in a sinful, sin-filled world, don't we? We live in a broken world. Aren't there real dangers and threats and forces of evil around us? It's not mere sounds. There are things that are troubling. 
is the debt that you're accumulating every day in which you have no idea how you're going to deal with. Is that simply a figment of your imagination? Are the problems that are facing your marriage, is that simply a rustling in the trees? Is your child's rebellion not real? Do you not have to live with it every single day? And are the threats that the church faces from individualism, from legalism, from worldliness, from doctrinal error, are those mere leaves rustling on the trees or are those not threats against us and our church? Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that rustles constantly. The dangers are real. The worry and anxiety is real. In the face of these, however, the Apostle Paul teaches us not to ignore them, not to pretend that they're not there, but to face them, and to face them by going to God in prayer. So that's our theme this morning. In the face of threats and dangers, pray. Pray to the God who gives peace. Pray to the God who gives peace because He's near, because He hears your worries, and because He guards your hearts and your minds. So first then, pray to the God who gives peace because He's near. In facing the realities of life, Paul teaches us what to do. He says, you need to pray. But before we can understand that instruction, We need to understand one critical truth upon which that instruction is based and sits so close, it sits right underneath it. And that is that short sentence right before verse 6 in our text. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. What does that mean? Well, to give some texture to that, I want you to consider with me the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the Israelites in the desert. In the feeding of the 5,000, that scene is striking. You, you can hardly imagine. 5,000 men plus many thousand women and children all listening to the Lord Jesus. Can you imagine that? That many people just in the open air? Enough to fill a hockey arena? Sitting there listening to his teaching. That in itself is difficult to understand. And now can you imagine feeding that many people with five loaves of bread and two fish. The disciples want to send the crowds away, but the Lord Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish that are available. He gives thanks to the Lord, and He proceeds to give everyone what they need, plus extras. It it just keeps going. It's a miracle of of generous grace, of superabundance, more than what the people need. But we need to realize about that miracle that it's not really about the staggering amount of people or the staggering amount of food. No, it's who sits behind the miracle that's important. And we know that because there was another time in history when God's people were hungry. They were going through the desert. And they called out, well, not even to the Lord, they grumbled to Moses and Aaron. And instead of sending lightning or fire from the sky to punish these people, the Lord was merciful and gracious. 
and he gave them manna. The Lord gave them manna every single day, the manna that they needed. In that instance, the Lord provided abundantly for his people. Each day he'd give them what they needed for that day, no more, no less. Every single day, daily food for daily life. Daily grace for daily life. And in this, the people were being taught. They were learning about this God who had rescued them from Egypt. This God of their fathers and their forefathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were learning that he was not only a God who saved in in great and powerful ways, but that he was also a God who saved simply by sustaining his people, giving them what they needed every day. That he was a God who saved by sustaining, by nourishing, by providing for his people. They were learning about God. That God is the God who saves and preserves. The God who destroys and protects. They were learning that God is near. Fast forward 1,500 years, and you have a situation that's remarkably similar. The people of Israel are, it's like they're wandering around in this world. They're called repeatedly in the Gospels, sheep without a shepherd. And in the moment that Matthew records for us, they also share in the hunger of their forefathers. They need food. And so it's precisely at that moment that the Lord Jesus, in a most dramatic and unexpected way, repeats the lesson of the manna. And that's this, that the Lord is near. Isn't that exactly what the Lord Jesus showed to the people all around him, hoping for food? Yes, he was concerned about their health and and the nourishment of their bodies, but he didn't give them food on every day. He was more concerned that they might be able to understand who it was that was speaking and preaching and leading them. Jesus, at that moment, pulls back the curtain and reveals something profound and amazing about himself. And that is that he is the sustainer, the nourisher, the provider, the one that God's people have always depended on for their food and who they always should depend on. He's the one who at the same time saves and preserves, destroys and protects. He's showing them that he, the Lord, is near. Jesus Christ is the one who sustains and provides and nourishes his people. And not only their physical needs, but also their deep spiritual needs. Was it not Jesus when he was by the well, the well that feeds your physical body with water? Was it not he who pointed to that water and said, he was the true life-giving water? Was it not Jesus who pointed past the life-giving food, the bread that we all need to survive, and said that He was the bread of life? Jesus Christ is the one who you and I, who all of us need to depend on for daily grace. He's the Lord, the King, the Ruler. He is the one who has heaven and earth at His disposal. He is the one who will give us what we need every day. He, the Lord, is near. 
that's the truth that really sits underneath Paul's instruction to pray. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has all the resources of heaven and earth, who is mighty and powerful, who is gentle and loving, is near. Now, how is he near? I can't see him. I don't hear him speaking to me. Perhaps your experience is that he doesn't always feel, seem, near. Isn't it true that you experience that anxiety and that worry, that fear, precisely because you don't know where he is? He doesn't seem near. How is he near? Well, he's near by his spirit. Although he did once spend time on this earth, same earth in which we now stand, and he was physically present to give bread to his people, he is no longer. He's in heaven. He's with his Father. However, as he promised, he's not left us alone, but he continues to be with us in and through his Holy Spirit. He's near us in the Spirit. The Spirit the Bible teaches us, gives us the mind of Christ. The Spirit's a deposit guaranteeing the work of Christ on our behalf. The Spirit intercedes for us before His throne. The Spirit speaks to our heart and, and tells us that we're loved by God and that for the sake of Jesus Christ, we are God's children. The Spirit lives in our hearts and unites us with Jesus Christ. Christ is near in His Spirit. He's also near in His Word. When Jesus promised to send His Spirit, He promised that the Spirit would teach and remind the believers about His own words, about what He had taught. And not only the words that came out of His mouth, the book of John at the beginning calls Jesus the Word. It's when we read and we dig into and we study, uncover, discover the truths of the Bible. We're discovering and uncovering and learning more about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is near us in His Word. It's not something that you see. It's something that you believe. It's something that you trust. Through faith you gain assurance and the knowledge of the fact that the Israelites learned so long ago. And all those people out there on the hillside who received the food from Jesus, you learn the same thing. That's that the Lord is near. So that short verse tells us about the nearness of the Lord. Of the Lord, and that provides the foundation for understanding Paul's words about fighting against and guarding yourself from the anxiety and the worries of this world. And you do it through prayer. It's important to understand that. It's important to understand that for this reason. And that is, when you come to verse 6 in our text, it's very easy to have it become a mantra or a formula that you use in your life. I'm anxious. I'm worried. But if I pray, according to this formula here in chapter 6 of Philippians 4, 
If I pray to God for help and I include thanksgiving, then my anxiety will go away and I'll get the peace of God. Right? We, we approach it like some sort of formula. Prayer plus thanksgiving equals peace. It's simple math. Who can't do that? But doesn't the practice of this formula speak about its failure to actually work in our lives? You try praying to God, asking for help and looking for peace, and no sooner do you start to pray than your mind drifts back to the problem that you were worried about in the first place. The thing that started you worrying and fretting. And so instead of peace, you continue in the worry that you started with. So what's the problem? Is, is Paul wrong? Is this a bad formula? Well, no, that's, that's not the case at all. Rather, it's the fact that if we're understanding this text as a formula, or as a, as a sort of pill that you can take to get rid of your anxiety and worries, then we're misunderstanding this text. That's why I wanted to highlight the importance of those words just before, the Lord is near. We're not talking about a pill or a formula. We're talking about a relationship. A relationship with a person. Jesus Christ. We're talking about finding freedom from worry and anxiety and ultimately finding profound peace in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is near. And so it's in that context of the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul tells us not to worry. Do not worry, he says. I mentioned something about this last week, but it's worth mentioning again. This command not to worry, it's, it's not a rebuke. It's an encouragement. If you picture yourself going back to that shed on a dark morning, it's not your dad yelling out of the window, hey, stop being afraid. That's wrong. It's not that at all. Rather, it's your father coming beside you, putting his hand on your shoulder and saying, it's okay. You don't need to be afraid. I'm close by. Why not worry? Because you have access to Jesus Christ and to the manna that he provides. Just like the Israelites didn't have to worry about the food that they were going to receive, and just like the disciples didn't have to worry about the food that they were going to have, so we don't need to worry where the supplies to endure and overcome our present difficulties will come from. We don't need to worry about that. Because we can be confident in the one who supplies. The one who has every resource in heaven and earth at his disposal. The one who has uninhibited access to the throne of the Father in heaven. That's why the solution to anxiety and worry is prayer. Prayer bypasses the troubles and goes right to the one who's in control. The one who lives in peace. The one who offers peace to those who call on him. Prayer is about that relationship. It doesn't have a power on its own. Just to highlight that, I want to talk for a moment about that expression. The the power of prayer. You might have heard that before. I'm not saying that every time someone uses that expression, they're using it wrongly. But it can easily lead to the wrong idea, the power of prayer. 
That's what you hear a lot from New Age spiritualist gurus. They say there's something powerful about prayer, but really that's ridiculous. If prayer has any power at all, it might be to lull your mind or refocus you just like meditation or relaxation techniques. But prayer has no power in itself to do anything. And that's not what Paul meant to teach the Philippians or us Because the point isn't about prayer itself, but the point is about who you're praying to. That's where the power is in prayer. That makes all the difference. Prayer is an expression of the relationship that you have with your Father in heaven, that you have with Jesus Christ at His right hand. In corporate terms, as as Paul is writing this, he's writing to the whole body of believers Prayer is an expression of our communal and covenantal relationship with the Father. We have a Father, and He's almighty and sovereign God. We've been adopted into His family through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And so God the Father, along with Jesus Christ, is King and ruler of the world, and we have access to His throne. And He is is eminently able to do more than we can ask or imagine. That's why Paul urges us not to settle down into our worries and anxieties, but to bring them before God. Don't let worry become the normal pattern of your life, Paul is saying, because you'll be denying the Father through Jesus Christ His rightful place and role in your life as the as the provider and sustainer of all things. Has God not been with you? Has He not proven Himself that He's powerful and able? Bring your worries and your anxieties before His throne. Instead of worry, hope in God. With prayer and petition, that means with with beseeching, Constantly before his throne and with with requests of all different types. And of course, thanksgiving. Because we know what he's done for us. He's shown us in his word. Bring your requests to God. And the result of this, this free access to the throne of God the Father and Jesus Christ at his right hand is absolute safety and everlasting security of the peace of God. You bring those worries to God, and you get back peace. What is this peace? Peace is is a rich word in the Bible. You've probably heard it explained in terms of that Hebrew word shalom. Shalom, which is often translated as peace, and it refers to a kind of wholeness or completeness. That's a good place to start when we're considering what Paul means here by peace, wholeness or completeness. But yet, that can be kind of a vague concept, can it? Uh, is, is this peace then, is it, is it a feeling? After going to the Lord in prayer, don't you feel better about things? Your focus has been shifted, your heart has been stilled, and your mind is more at ease. That's a wonderful feeling. It is a a feeling, but it's a wonderful one, and it's a blessing from God that going to Him has that effect on your heart and your mind. But at the same time, I don't think that's the peace 
that Paul is talking about here. Why not? Well, look at how Paul describes this peace in verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. It's no momentary or even temporary feeling of relief, as good as that might be. It's a peace that surpasses understanding. It's of the highest magnitude of peace possible. It's beyond our ability to grasp. Not only that, but this peace has power. Real power. It guards the hearts and the minds of God's people as they unite in prayer. So what is this peace? Well, as Paul says, it's the peace of God. It's the peace that comes from God. God, you could say, is the fountainhead of peace. God in His trinity and unity, holiness and grace, justice and mercy, He dwells in peace. There's nothing lacking in Him. He's complete. There's no tension. Perfect relationship between the Father and the Son. Perfect relationship between the Son and the Spirit. Perfect relationship between the Spirit and the Father. Perhaps especially considering the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that has no need of reconciliation, but only perfect harmony. So considering that, that you grasp the sort of peace of God. That's the quality of the peace that we're talking about. But perhaps more to the point, the peace of God that Paul is talking about is the peace that was made possible through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, in order to bring peace to this world, He gave up that eternal peace that He had with the Father. He gave it up in order to go to the cross and there take the punishment for our sins by suffering the wrath of His own eternal Father. He gave up peace in order to give us peace. As Isaiah prophesied years before, His punishment has brought us peace. Peace with God, the peace of God. Now this is not to say that prayer is the only way of accessing this peace. Of course, we realize that it's by faith that we trust. But what is prayer except the expression of our relationship with God? What's prayer except for the expression of our faith in God? God, I trust in you. I believe in what you've done through Jesus Christ. Now help me in this present circumstance. Our faith grasps hold of and resides in Christ. Paul even says that this, this peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's all centered on the atoning work of Christ through which we have peace. The peace of God is, is comprehended by the, the perfect unity and trinity of God. It's a wholeness. And it's applied to us through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. Now let's let this sink in. Because it would not be good if we, we talked in high theological terms about God's peace, but then we fail to experience that when when it comes to balancing our checkbook and realizing how far in debt we really are. When it comes to that, 
a child with disabilities and you, you don't know what to do. Or to the stressful times that you're experiencing at, at home or at work. How does the work of Christ on the cross affect these realities, these sources of our worries and our anxieties? Well, God has done so much and offers such blessings through the work of Christ that as Paul says somewhere else, our troubles become light and momentary. And if God has done this much for us, if God has so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, how will He not also help us? Since God has done this much, He will look after you. God has brought you into His family. God has brought you into His kingdom through the work of Christ. Not to leave you alone in this world, but to be your Father. To provide for you and to care for you. God will look after our needs. And this is not because God will answer our prayers in the way that we expect or want, but because His ways and His peace are far higher than our ways. And so it is that the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus through your union with Christ by faith. And the reconciliation and the blessings that come from that, your heart and mind, your feelings and emotions and thoughts are guarded. Just like a garrison of, of soldiers that protected the city of Philippi from her enemies. Just as the Lord was a shield and a wall around His people as they wandered through the wilderness. So He will provide you with the protection from the unsettling and fearful worries and anxieties in this troubled world. It doesn't mean that the rustles in the dark are going to go away. It doesn't mean that you won't fear the rustles in the dark. It doesn't mean that financial debt you have is immediately paid. That your wife is going to forgive you. That your daughter is going to start behaving. But face these troubles head on. Go to the God who is near. Pray to the God who gives peace. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.